During this series um, that we've been in for the last two months, Loving Logic, as we've prepared, and this may or may not matter to you, I'm just saying it anyway, because it matters to me, but uh, as we've prepared um, each week, and we've been, we've been grilling, not on the grill, but grilling the notes and just steaming them up and just chopping them and dicing them, and, and, but wait, there's more, <laughs> uh, just over, just making sure they're the right thing for you, for, because we're teaching the whole church doctrine, and so, uh, but we found every week that, that th- 35 minutes is not enough time to preach, and so we've had to, last, last week was, I, I don't know if you were looking at your watch, but I preached 50, 55 minutes, um, and weeks prior, you know, 45 minutes, and, and it's a, l- a little longer, now this is the last week, uh, the next three months, we're going to be back to 35-minute messages because it's better. It really is. You know, and if we can't say it all in 35 minutes, what are you saying, right? I mean, so we know that. But, but with that, we've had to cut worship songs each week. And I, I'll tell you that I'm, I'm feeling like, oh, I just want so much more work. Could you just come on up, Morgan, and lead us in about hours worth of worship? I mean, you know, it's like, ah, oh, I want, we're not going to do that, but I uh, want so much more. But we, we do have a song at the end, so let me, let me get on with this. Um, I want to take a moment real quick, just welcome our guests today. We are so glad that you've come out to be with us. Yeah, give it up for our guests today. We are, we are super glad that you've come to be a part of what God's doing here at Northwood Church. Um, there's a lot of great churches in our community, a lot of great churches that are doing great things for God, and God's moving in their midst, and um, you've come to be with us today, and so we're, we're, we want to make sure that we communicate that, that we are grateful that you've uh, come to be with us today. We'd love to know who you are. The way we do that here at Northwood, there's a card in the seat pocket in front of you. If you'll just take a moment during the service to fill it out, and then at the end of the service, at our Next Steps area in the back of the room, or as you exit either of the doors going out the back, uh, there'll be some guys there with buckets. You can drop that card in there. I'll get that card this week, and I'll reach out to you through text message, and we can begin a conversation that hopefully can answer questions that you might have about the church or your walk with God. Um, but uh, if you'll do that, and we'll also be praying with you uh, concerning your walk with God and all that God's doing in your life. And uh, our prayer team loves to do that. We, we love our guests, and we love the opportunity to connect. Um, also, um, at Northwood, very, you're very generous. We are very generous in giving. We've always been generous in giving, but we always like to communicate how you can give. So there's three ways to give at Northwood. We have boxes in the lobby. You can give online. I think most everybody does, but northwood.church slash giving. And then, of course, you could always mail in a check. But thank you for your faithful giving. Um, so much of um, every week we try to highlight something, right? And, and, and so much of what we give, we give away to missions, to local organizations, and this week's a little different. We, we're actually, it's going to be an internal type giving this week, or give you the opportunity to, but uh, uh, I want to highlight our student ministry, and then I want to highlight real quick our, our, our kids ministry that's going on right now. Just so grateful for the kids ministry, but, um, but our student ministry, and Justin and his team uh, of fabulous leaders, experienced leaders, been doing this a long time. Uh, get the privilege of ministering to your students, junior high and high school students, every week. And um, tonight, actually, is uh, a special night. It's, it's our student night, and it's uh, going to be at our Long Beach location. 
And uh, we do have transportation, and there's more information about that. You can stop by our student section right over here in the back corner and talk to one of the leaders. But uh, we're going to get have arranged transportation. But tonight's student night, um, where all of our students get to come together, and we do this on purpose. You know, it it gives an opportunity to connect with one another, to see friends that they haven't seen in a while, uh, to meet new friends. Uh, but it's an opportunity for us to worship together as students, um, and so we're we're doing that tonight. Um, at our Long Beach location. And then also, if you've kind of been around a little bit, and maybe you're a student, you, you participated in this, but this summer, we had two major events. We had, um, we had a camp, a summer camp for our students, which was fabulous, and um, some great fruit that is coming from that. And then we also uh, had a conference this summer that we participated in a conference for our students. We always try to provide things for our students, different types of things to help them to grow in Christ, to help them connect with one another, and to, un- to b- get a better grap- uh, grasp on their own walk with God and what that looks like, discipleship for them. This fall, we have something, a big event planned in October, mid-October, that, is there a slide for that, Kelly? If there's not, that's okay, but uh, I'd love to see a slide. Maybe we can put one together real quick, Kelly, while I'm talking. Um, so, so this summer, we're going, um, this October, just in about a month away, we're going to do uh, a fall retreat. And this is something we've not done before. We're, we're putting this together and very excited about this. But a fall retreat, it's going to be in the kiln. Did I say it right? Kiln? In the kiln. You don't say the inn, right? The inn's silence, Mississippi. It's going to be over in the kiln and uh, out in the woods. And uh, it's going to be uh, two days, one night retreat, and it's going to be a, an opportunity for our kids to disconnect from, as a matter of fact, we, we we're going we're gonna to disconnect from uh, social media for the weekend and disconnect from just the world around and really spend time pursuing God. Come on, how many of you not a kid and you're jealous right now? <laughs> yes, uh, but um, it's a great opportunity. Uh, it's going to cost $100 per student, and I want to give others the opportunity. Maybe you don't have a student. Maybe you were a student, but you're too old to be a student now, or your kids are grown or whatever. But I want to give you the opportunity to be able to give. And so we're, we're actually, and in, in, you've got a whole month for this, but we're actually um, going to give opportunity for uh, us, to sp- us to sponsor students to go to this event. It's $100 for their event. We, we're goal, our goal is to have 80 students at, from all four locations at this fall retreat. And so if you want to know more about that, you can get with Justin, and he can give you the deets. You like that? Deets. Um, he'll be in the back, right over here in the student section, uh, and you can get with him this week or, or as soon as you have the opportunity to. But we are, we are so um, excited about the fall retreat and what it's going to produce. Real quick, I want to talk about our kids' ministry. Uh, our, student, our student ministry is, is wonderful, and I can't say enough about our kids' ministry as well. And um, Angela and her team, uh, amazing uh, men and women who work in the kids' ministry, many of you serve in the kids' ministry from babies, infants in the, in the room back here, and the toddlers, and then, of course, our three or four room, uh, which has got curriculum and curriculum-based, and they're, whoa, thank you, John. You didn't do nothing? Wow. Um, it was God. Um, and then our five to eight room, which is in the back here, you might have just heard them when we finished worshiping. They were still going and, and thumping away back there. The kids back in that five to eight room, they worship God, and they, 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 they're, they're all in, right? And they're worshiping the king. Uh, sometimes I'm a little jelly of them, right? Like that, jelly? Um, so, 
And then our 9, 10, and 11-year-olds are upstairs, and um, again, they're very curriculum-based. I mean, Carl, you're up there, and Anthony's up there today. Uh, I better stop because there's so many of you that sort of up in there teaching our students, our kids, uh, about the Bible uh, and about Jesus and principles of his word. And so can't say enough about them. So with that, I want to I appeal to you, if you're not serving in the kids' ministry, um, number one, uh, you, you have an interest, that's enough right there. Uh, if you're a teacher or a teacher's aide or you've been a teacher, a homeschool mom, something like that, we would like to appeal to you to come join our kids' uh, ministry. Uh, we actually, um, in our three to four room and in our toddler room, we, we, have, we have room for people. We need, we need more workers. The team is fabulous, and uh, they're serving every few weeks, so it's spread out. But we, we want to spread it out a little more for them so they're in this room a little more. And that requires more volunteers. And so I'm appealing to you, we're appealing to you to volunteer for that. Uh, we will train you, and we do background checks and all those kind of things and just to make sure everything's up and up and you're equipped. But, um, but you know, many of you might have been here for a while, and you're like, you know what, I need to serve. don't know where to serve. Where should I serve? I'm thinking about serving. Today I'm giving you the opportunity to serve. So two ways you can do that. Number one, after service today, we're actually going to have our next steps class right past the north lobby up here in the classroom, but our Next Steps class, and you can come in there, and that's how you can connect to that ministry. But also, uh, Angela, just stand up for me real quick, because I want everybody to see your face. This is Angela Craven, and she is, give her a hand, give her a hand. And this is for you and your team, because you, you wouldn't be you without your team, right? But Angela is going to actually be in the Next Steps area after service today, and you can ask her questions. She can give you all the deets, like that, Justin. Um, and, and help you to connect with that ministry. And she's actually the one who trains everybody. She's amazing in that. So, so that's, but, but let me also say, wait, there's more, is that she's also looking for a couple of couples. Now here, we just talked about God talking to us. Angela and I are standing here today, sitting and standing on this stage and sitting here today because we were, we were, we were right there, Clint, in Gulfport. When God spoke to us and said, go serve in the kids' ministry. And it was God. I couldn't resist. I couldn't deny. And that started our serving at Northwood Church. That, that we spent five years in the kids' ministry and then small group leaders. And, all that, and then God called us to be pastors. And there's some of you here today that you're, and maybe you're thinking God's calling you to ministry, but you're not sure where. Let, let me confidently but humbly say, Angela Craven will put you in a place of servitude, right, that will begin your ministry. You don't know how. You don't know where. How do you do this? Do I go to Bible college? No, go to the five to eight room and teach. Teach about Elijah and Daniel and Moses and how he built the ark. You got me? Yeah, trick question, huh? Don't, don't wait, don't wait for a light from heaven. So anyway, Angela, that, I told you I was going to appeal. And I think that, yes. So I expect Angela to have a long list today, right, of people who are called to serve. <laughs> and so it's very rewarding, by the way. So anyway, that's that. So after service today, you can also come to the Next Steps room. Um, 
and be a part of that, or you can stop by and see Angela. And so, come on, let's jump into the scriptures. Let's jump into our message today. This is the final installment of our Loving Logics uh, series. We have talked about a lot of things, and whew, we've covered a lot of ground, and hopefully you've gotten a lot of help, uh, a lot of tools, a lot of equipping that will help you have conversations. We started uh, well over, uh, well, right at two months ago saying this, that each one of us is responsible for our own spiritual formation. Y'all remember talking about that? Each one of us is responsible for our own spiritual formation. And with that, uh, in, in building your, your spiritual formation and growing your spiritual formation, you're going to come across this moment where you realize you, you don't have an apologetic. You don't have an apologetic. You don't know why you believe what you believe. And you can't explain it to others. You're, you're having a tough time. You, you know that you believe, right? And that's why you're here. But you don't know how to articulate that to someone who's a lost person or someone who's curious, kicking the tires. Someone's like, well, why do you believe in that? You know, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And you're like, well, I know that he did, and I gave my life to that, but I couldn't explain it. And so that's why we talked about six weeks ago about the atonement and the atoning work of Christ. And we're working through different doctrines that will help you with your apologetic, with your mental understanding of what your heart knows is right, right? The, the, the scriptures are right, and I know that it says it in the Bible, but telling someone to go read the Bible is not an apologetic. I need to know why I believe what I believe, and so we've worked through some tough topics. We've worked through a variety of things, but today's the last message on that. We're going to take a little break and jump into Colossians here in a few weeks and spend about three months in Colossians, um, which is also a part of building an apologetic, by the way. But uh, speaking of Colossians, we, we've been reading the scripture each week, but this is not new, what we're doing in, in building an apologetic. This is not new in us confronting culture and cultural... It's got to be you, John. I'm not taking credit for this. You were on the other side of the booth. That's why it happened. Uh, it's not new. Cultural, cultural conflict, people not believing what we believe, people questioning what we believe has been around since the beginning of the church. Paul saw it, and he even wrote to the Colossians. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2, we see he said this. He said, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so same, same thing that we need to hear today. Um, this is challenging us to form an apologetic, to know why you believe what you believe. Does that make sense? And so our goal in this series has been to be informed and equipped to hold fast to and declare biblical truth in a loving and logical way way. So each week we've combated a different progressive Christian statement that, is try, that tries to undermine our doctrinal truths. Doctrines being our truths, our, that our foundational uh, understanding of why we believe what we believe. And so each week we've kind of attacked the progressive Christian movement and progressive Christianity has been around for a long, long time. It's just been falling under different names, liberal Christianity, um, different movements that have uh, had similar uh, idea, ideas and ide ideologies, worldviews as progressive Christianity. But today, if you are on social media or if your children are on social media or some of you, your grandchildren are on social media, uh, they are getting bombarded by um, a progressive Christian movement. Progressive Christianity is not true Christianity. I'm saying that. I don't believe it is because it totally doesn't go with what we believe when we read the Bible. And so that's why we're coming out straight up attacking. This is not Christianity. This is a, 
they want you to think they're Christians, but they're, they're undermining our truths. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe the truths of the Word of God. And so with that, the, the uh, logical conclusion that progressive Christians have ultimately rejects historical Christianity. If you believe the Bible, the truths of the Bible, if you, if you cling to the Word of God, if you believe what the Bible says, you are in a category of people called traditional Christians. Nothing to be ashamed of. Now, that doesn't mean on the outside we're very modern in our cultural interactions, but we are very traditional in our doctrinal beliefs and what we hold true uh, as truth. And so this week, the progressive Christian statement that we're going to be looking at is actually dealing with, uh, or it's a result of, all of the progressive Christian statements that we've been speaking about the last two months. It's kind of like a culmination. It boils down to this today. Uh, we, we crafted this as pastors this week, uh, and so I'm going to read it. If you, if you deconstruct old restrictive ideas, old restrictive ideas, if you deconstruct old restrictive ideas, if you downplay Jesus and his divinity, if you believe we are all good, and that truth is subjective, if you believe that we don't need church leadership because it's built on power and manipulation, if you believe that sexual identity is the ultimate form of expression, if you believe all of these ideas, then you end up questioning whether or not there is any consequence for your actions or beliefs at all. If you believe all these things, if you've leaned, let's just say one way, left or right, whatever you want to call it, but if you've leaned over here to this side that's away from traditional Christianity, if you believe all these things that we've been preaching each week, if you're, uh, you, then you are a progressive Christian if you believe all these things, but you're also ultimately going to logically get to this place where you're going to question, are there any consequences to any of my actions? And logically, on that side, there are no consequences. And if you take away consequences to action, if there are no consequences, there's no more responsibility anymore, and there's no more accountability. And so nobody's held to any standard. No, so God basically, you would, you, would, you would then conclude, God does not hold us to any standard. It's just do whatever, whatever you want. And we read this in, I think, week two, week three of this message series, where we went back into the Scripture, and we read in the days of Noah, that people did whatever they wanted to do. We read in the days of the judges that people did whatever was right in their own eyes. And that's where progressive Christianity logically leads us to. No accountability, no responsibility, no consequences for actions. This is, in fact, exactly what progressive Christians believe. We've mentioned Philip Gully several times. He's a big thought leader in the progressive Christian movement um, he wrote a book called If the Church Were Christian, and totally attacking um, traditional Christianity. Uh, but his philosophy is that there shouldn't be any consequences for our actions. Um, and much of what we've preached through, he, he has behind the scenes propagated out, and then people, of course, take that. So he'll say it. People like him will say it. Richard Rohr is another one. If you're following Richard Rohr, he is also one of the progressive Christian thought leaders, a Catholic priest. And we usually don't call people out, but you know what? Sometimes you got to call people out. I have a responsibility. Can I just say this? I have the responsibility to identify wolves in sheep's clothing and identify them to you so you're not naive, so you're not deceived, so you're not taken and trapped, and your kids are not stolen away from you and raped and pillaged by the enemy. Can I just say there are 
are certain people I'm going to call their names out. So, so these thought leaders, these thought leaders are behind their pulpits and they're saying these words. It's not them that your children are listening to, but it's the people who listen to them. Then they're going out and they're saying on TikTok, if you're not on TikTok, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but your kids do. And on TikTok, they're just, these guys are out there in 60, to three, 60 seconds to three minutes. They're giving these little, you know, yeah, I used to be a Christian. I used to be an evangelical. I used to believe the Bible. I used to, I used to, I used to. I don't anymore because I'm deconstructing. And you know what? I'm not against deconstruction. Man, deconstruct all day long, but with the intent of rebuilding, with the intent of reconstruction. But if you're deconstruction just because you've, whew, I almost cussed, so I almost cussed. That was the closest I've ever come to cussing right there. I'm a little bit passionate about this. I didn't know, Rebecca. Regroup, regroup, regroup. Let's get back to my notes. Today's progressive Christian statement, life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Philip Gully, we were just talking about, thought leader, says the church has been too preoccupied with the afterlife. Can you believe that, Susan? Too preoccupied with the afterlife. He also says that fortunes are spent saving people from the imaginary dangers of imaginary places. Heaven and hell, are they real? As a progressive Christian, you would say no. And because they're not real, we should be investing in today, in this world, not worried about some future imaginary la-la land. This is a hot topic, and many people do question the afterlife. Is there an afterlife? If so, what's it like? Is there punishment? Is there reward? Is there nothing? Progressive Christians would say, don't worry about what happens after death. No one really knows anyway. As a matter of fact, no one really knows, but also no one really knows if it's real anyway. They would say our problem isn't sin. It's suffering. It's war. It's poverty. It's disease. These things are actually hell. The things we see around us, and they're very vocal about this. A progressive Christian would say our purpose is to fix these things, the poverty, the war, the suffering, the disease, and create a heaven on earth, a heaven on earth here and now. So that, that, that may or may not be what you're hearing, but there's someone you love that is. And if you're going to have fruitful conversations with your children and grandchildren and your coworkers and classmates, if you're going to have fruitful conversations, some of you are 20-somethings with your spouse and with others your age, you need an apologetic. You need to know why you believe what you believe. There, there are many people, many, even maybe in this room, many people who really can't bear the thought of there being a, a real hell most of the time it's because it doesn't, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> it doesn't feel good to consider that there might be a literal hell. That's it's a little scary, actually, to consider that there might be a real hell. It's, it's much easier to 
to deny it even exists. Kind of lets me off the hook, you know, if I'm, if I'm struggling with that. But this isn't logical to base our theological opinions on the way we feel. I don't even know it's not safe to base anything in life off of what you feel. Your feelings will lie to you all day long. We base our opinions, our logic is formed on truth. Hell is certainly a difficult topic for us to accept, for people to accept, understandably, because people have so many questions about hell's existence. And so when we're talking about building an apologetic, we have to be willing to look at the other side and their questions. And so today we're going to actually examine some questions that progressive Christians, but not just progressive Christians, many people actually have outside of Christianity questions that that we need to have answers for if we're going to be able to articulate to those people why we believe what we believe. And so some questions that people ask about hell. Number one, a question would be, haven't we misinterpreted the word hell in the Bible? Haven't we misinterpreted the word hell in the Bible? We've actually got a video. Kelly, you got that video? Roll that video. Let's watch this. This will help us to understand Man, that sounds good. Old Derek the heretic has got it, man. He's on it. So if you don't have an apologetic, let's just say you're here today, you're 16 years old, 17 years old. You've grown up in church. You know about Moses and Noah, Daniel in the lion's den. But you have no idea about what he's talking about. That sounds pretty smooth. So, okay, okay. Maybe there's no hell after all. Well, that, that changes everything. Matter of fact, it starts to cause me to think about other things that maybe we've gotten wrong. Maybe we've gotten the whole Bible thing wrong. Maybe we've gotten the whole God thing wrong. Maybe I can do whatever I want to do and get away with it. <laughs> and that's a logical train of thought that takes place if you don't have foundational doctrines as your apologetic. And so... Let's, 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 let's argue with Derek. He says that the words used for hell in the Bible were misinterpreted. Now, I will give him this. It's true that the word hell isn't in any original manuscripts of the Bible. The word hell is not in any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The word hell, as we know it, wasn't used until about the 13th century, long after the original manuscripts were Written. However, the argument that these words were misinterpreted does not negate the Bible's description of the afterlife as he would want you to believe. 
So here's the words he talked about. He, he talked about the word Gehenna. Gehenna, used in the Bible, it's a valley in Jerusalem, supposedly, uh, used figuratively, figuratively as the place or the state of everlasting punishment. It's very controversial on whether or not the word Gehenna was even in the original manuscripts. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's contested by not just Derek the heretic, but it's contested by many people that, that the word Gehenna was used for a place of everlasting punishment. He also, can, uh, he also attacks the word Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Sheol is in, used in the Old Testament. And in the same um, description for, in the New Testament written in the Greek is the word Hades. Some of you, you might have heard that or read that before. It is a place or a state of departed souls, uh, a place of death or the grave. And so these two words uh, he's saying should not be interpreted as the word hell. And then the third word, actually only used one time in the New Testament. It's only used one time in the whole Bible. It's the word Tartarus, and it means to be cast into hell or the deepest abyss of Hades to incarcerate in eternal torment. Um, we, we see that word used, Tartarus, in Second Peter. Peter, in writing to the church, um, he was writing to the Greek people. He's writing to the Greeks in this particular passage uh, letter. And he used a word that would be very common in Greek language. It was actually a word used in Greek mythology, Tartarus, and it meant the abyss. And so Peter used a modern-day word to describe the eternal punishment or hell. And so what Derek and many progressive Christians do is they say, well, these words weren't written as the word hell in the Bible. So these words are not, in fact good references when we're talking about a, a hell. Now, the fact that these words may have been symbolic or allegorical um, doesn't undo traditional Christian beliefs surrounding the reality of what we call hell. If you did, never use the word hell again, but you use these words, it would still mean the same thing. We use allegory, we use symbols, we use illustrations to describe tangible, real things all the time. Jesus did the same thing. How many of you have ever heard someone say, man, it's raining cats and dogs out there? Anybody ever heard that? Most all of us have heard that, right? Now, now I don't know. I don't think anybody has ever really thought there were cats and dogs falling from the sky. It was symbolic. It was allegory. It meant a heavy rainfall, right? And so when Jesus is preaching to the crowds, and he says, in the end, those that are not on God's team are going to be burned, and he points down the valley into this valley well known as the Valley of Hinnom, which is also called Gehenna, and it's where the trash is burned, and there's fire and smoke rising up. You can smell it. Right there where he's preaching, I'm sure. And he uses this allegorical symbolism to describe to people, to describe to us what it's going to be like. Okay, so I don't, I don't think that we're going to be boxed up and shipped to Israel and thrown in the Valley of Hinnom. But how many of you know, I don't want to be thrown into a fire heap in a valley and burn perpetually. So whether you're 
interpreting Gehenna as hell, or just Gehenna, it's hot, it's fiery, it's stinky, and it's forever. It's both bad. But what progressive Christianity wants you to do is say, see, see this word, it's not really a literal hell, so hell doesn't exist. But you can't, that's illogical. The second word that was used is Sheol or Hades. Same thing in the Bible over and over again, Sheol and Hades is used to describe this eternal torment. And they weren't written as hell, but they have the same definition. And the third word, tar, uh, Tartarus, is the same thing. To be cast into hell, to be put in the grave, a state where departed souls exist. Same meaning, even though the word's not the same word. The Bible also describes hell in a lot of other ways. So, okay. Gehenna, Hades, Tartarus, Sheol. If none of those words in the progressive Christian mindset means hell, let's just, for the moment, set them to the side. We won't use them in our apologetic argument. Let's use the rest of the Bible. Here's some other ways the Bible describes hell. Having worms that eat us alive, fire, darkness, a pit, a sulfury place. People are in chains. There's conscious torment, anguish, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? So even if you didn't take the words that we do take to mean hell, the Bible describes this eternal separation from God as being a bad place that you don't want to end up. At the end of the day, the Bible describes hell. There are actually other descriptions of hell in the Bible. And these are important for building your apologetic. Three things. Number one, hell is eternal. Now, the word for eternal is a Greek word, aneus. And it means a lot of things. It means an age or an era means the world, a never-ending age to come. In its adjective form, it usually means everlasting or never-ending time. It's, it's complicated, that word. But that's the word that's used to reinterpret as eternal. Jesus described hell as eternal in Matthew 25, 41. The scripture reads, Then he will say to those on his left, Apart from me, you cursed into the Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is eternal. It doesn't end. It lasts forever. When you're describing hell, when you're understanding hell, you need to understand it's not. Because here's, 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 okay, here's where a progressive Christian or someone that doesn't agree with you would, would come back and they would say, well, just like before I was born, I didn't exist. When I die, we don't exist anymore. And you know, when you put it that way, that's not so bad, right? It wasn't so bad before you were born. You don't remember how long it was. You don't remember what it felt like. So if hell is that, what's the big deal? Matter of fact, see you in hell, right? And that is the argument. But if you're going to believe the Bible, if you're going to believe the foundational doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of hell, you have to understand hell is, number one, eternal. 
it lasts forever, never ending. And secondly, hell is conscious. Hell is conscious. Jesus shares a parable about a man, a rich man. The story of rich man and Lazarus. If you've read through the New Testament, you see that story. And he shares this story and he says that they, they both went, they both died and the rich man went to this place of torment and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. So he was, again, using some allegory here, but he was describing the afterlife to us. And the story goes that the rich man was in perpetual torment and he was aware of his, he was very conscious of the state he was in, of his torment. And it says he cried out, he could look across this sea and he cried out to Lazarus and he said, could you just, Lord, could you send Lazarus to just dip his finger in the water and let me just get a drip of water? It's that bad. I'm so parched. I'm so tormented. I'm so aware of my torment. And he, and he went on to say, maybe, maybe you could send someone to my family and tell them about this place so that, you know, so let me communicate to them so that they don't end up here. He was consciously aware of his torment. So hell is not only eternal, it's a conscience place where we are aware of what's going on. The Bible tells us the, the eternal conscious punishment are reserved for those who reject Christ. Progressive Christians believe that hell is a restorative place, that sinners are refined and renewed there. Okay, so let's, let's just take a moment and unpack that. Because this, this is foreign to many people. So many, many, many people believe this, that hell is a place where when you die, that if you're not right and you're not ready yet, you go to hell. And in that, there's a time where you learn how to be ready for heaven. And then at some given point, you go to heaven. This is actually called universalism. It's under the same umbrella that says everybody goes to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. You know, everybody goes to heaven, right? I mean, everybody goes to heaven. All dogs go to heaven. I mean, come on, there's a movie about that. Everybody goes to heaven. And so if you believe this, everybody goes to heaven. There's no punishment. There's no consequence for the life we live now. And so do whatever you want now. At the end, we're all going to go to heaven. And so hell is eternal. We believe hell is eternal. Hell is very conscious. We're aware of the torment. And hell is a place of punishment. And progressive Christians would argue that, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's not a bad place. Like Derek said in the video, we don't deny there may be some ambiguity, there may be some interpretive hurdles about hell, but we believe the Bible teaches that there is an eternal punishment for the wicked. And likewise, there's eternal life for the righteous. So, so another question that progressives ask and others ask is, isn't hell overkill? Firstly, yes, hell is overkill if you underestimate sin. If you have a misdemeanor mindset concerning sin, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, so, so, so I get pulled over. I get pulled over by the police. Todd pulls me over. Where's Todd? Todd, there you are. Todd pulls me over and writes me a ticket. You don't do that anymore, do you? Um, you probably do. Um, you, you write me a ticket. I ran a stop sign. Blew the stop sign. Rolled through, right? Didn't stop. You pull me over. You give me a ticket. And I look up out my window at Todd, and I say, come on, man. 
I mean, all I did was run a little stop sign. Aren't you supposed to go out and arrest people who are robbing banks and killing people? Well, that's a misdemeanor mindset. That says my little break in the law is nothing like the big break in the law, so just don't bother me. And so there are many, many people who are outside of traditional Christianity that would agree that, that, come on, all I've done is a little sin here and there. You know, no big deal. Come on, Father, let's pray right now. We've got a little seizure going on here. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for healing. We thank you for the presence of God. we got somebody walking out right now calling 911. Angela's taking care of that. He's going to get his mama. Okay. His mama is a nurse. Come on. Everybody's sitting in that area. Could y'all just kind of move back just a little bit and give some space? And mom's just going to come in, and we're going we're gonna to get this right. Thank you, Jesus. This is not his first time to fight this. And so we are thanking, thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Here's his mama right now. Karen, it's going to be okay. Come on, just continue to pray. God touches Katie. And everything's going to be all right. Is he going to be okay, Karen? He's good. He just had to take a moment there. You know, when things like this take place, it's, it's alarming, but until it happens to your baby, right, Karen? The urgency is not as great. It's going to be okay. What do we need, Karen? We need water. No hurry, Karen. We're all here standing with you. Yeah, where's Butch? There we go. We got the wheelchair coming right there. Thank you, guys. We love you, Caden. Thank y'all for praying. Caden's been fighting. He's been fighting what he's going through for since he was a baby, and he's been many, many years seizure-free. And I'm not sure that was actually a seizure, but more hyperventilation. But Karen is a trooper, and um, I said that. But you know, until it's your family member, until it's your baby, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, oh man. And we feel bad. We have conscience, right? We're consciously aware. But man, when it's your baby. 
changes things. Changes things. And so, I got you back. All right. Isn't hell overkill? Well, it is if you have a misdemeanor mindset. Todd, if we get a ticket for that rolling stop sign infraction, come on, man. And that's the way people feel about sin. Come on, man. My little sins don't stack up. I'm not a murderer. I didn't kill nobody. I didn't steal nothing really big, you know. I haven't done anything really, really bad. I'm not a molester. You know, so, so what's the big deal? I'm not going to go to hell, right? And people, so if you, if you misunderstand sin, if you don't understand the consequences and how sin affects the whole world that we live in, the effects of sin, if you don't understand that, then sure, hell's overkill. It's not even necessary. What's the big deal, right? Uh, secondly, Guys, it's so important, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this, but we, we live in a Western culture, and how many, how many of you have ever heard the, the phrase, first world problems? Have you all heard that before? It's a very common phrase, kind of old now, actually. Uh, but, you know, first world problems, you know, oh, man, you know, I ordered, I ordered sugar-free skinny latte, and they gave me sugar-full skinny latte. I'm so mad right now. And that's how we live in the Western world. You know, man, my air conditioner went out at my house. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm exasperated. Anybody, can I come live at your house? I got to get a hotel room. Oh, my gosh, I can't stand it. You know, that's how we are. And some of you are like, that's bad, though. It's hot in the South. I get it. But let me just say, we are so spoiled. And so how we look at hell, how we look at the punishment for sin well, it's, it's a universalist mentality. We do. We, we, we think, you know what? People shouldn't be punished so much for their sin. That's just, hell's a little bit much, God. I just don't know that I'm going to agree with that. Because we don't understand God's wrath. We don't even like God's wrath. Really, this is a question of the attributes of God. You know, his holiness, his, his purity, um, his righteousness, uh, his wrath, that, these are all characteristics of God. God doesn't just execute justice. He is justice. He doesn't just execute righteousness. He is righteousness, okay? He doesn't just uh, execute truth. He is truth. God is all these things. It's its essence. And so when we don't understand that, we, 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 we are, well, we question it. We question it. No, we do know the attribute of God. We like to, progressive Christians alike, and, and, and even Christians alike, we like the attribute of God that we read in the Bible. God is love. God is love. God is love. A loving God would never send someone to hell. Come on, man. Right? But love is an attribute of God. But so is wrath. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, and this is important, so i gotta, I got to get to it. I'll get to it. Having this mentality of, of God, this understanding of God, and this saying that hell is overkill, is for, for a Western worldview, a Western mindset, God, God shouldn't send people to hell. God shouldn't execute his judgment on people. That's, that's the way a progressive Christian would believe. But you go to any other parts of the world. You go to Liberia. You go to East Africa. You go to other parts of the world where it's not uncommon for a man to have his wife raped before his eyes and his daughter stolen and put into sex trafficking. 
You tell that man that God shouldn't execute wrath. A progressive Christian in the Western culture says, I have a hard time serving a God who would send someone to hell. But you go to Liberia, you go to, to, to East Africa, you go to other parts of the world, and you find men who would say, I have a hard time serving a God who wouldn't send someone to hell for what they've done. As a matter of fact, they live, worship, and, and have their very being in the fact that God is a just God. And all of the evil and the hell on earth that we experience and the devastation that we experience here, we know, we know, and we can serve God because we know one day people are going to pay for that. It's not the same in other parts of the world as it is in our soft Western culture. God is love, yes, but God is just as much wrath as he is love. To those people in other parts of the world, it would be unjust if the wicked go unpunished. Another question that we'll address, and we'll get to the end here. And yes, this is, this is how could a loving God punish people in hell? God is love, but he is wrath. D.A. Carson says, do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. 1 John 4 tells us that God's love is shown to us by Christ receiving the full penalty for our sin and satisfying God's wrath on the cross. You want to see God's love? Look at what Jesus did for humanity. Look at what Jesus did for you. You want to see God's wrath? Look at what Jesus did for you. His wrath was meant for you, for sin, for sinners. And yet Jesus stepped in and he took all of that wrath on himself. You can go back several weeks ago. We spent a whole message on atonement and it explains that. So at Northwood Church, what do we believe about eternity? We believe hell to be a place of eternal conscious punishment for everyone who rejects Christ. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is where we build our apologetic. I, I'll be honest with you, for all of us, there, there's a little of us that, that we say, that this is so hard to accept. And I get it because every one of us has loved ones that, that have died. And we don't always know where they ended up. My grandmother on my dad's side was very dear to me, was very close to me growing up. She moved in with us when I was in high school, and she, she's Mama. I love Mama. I love Mama. And my mom took care of us, my sister and I, and she, she was there for us and very dear. My mom died. And I, I don't know that my mom was in heaven. And if my mom's not in heaven, that means my mom's in hell. And that's why it's so hard to accept. And you're probably thinking about people now that, you're in the same boat. Loved ones that 
you, you, you just, it's, we don't want to think of them as being eternally, consciously punished. But if we're going to believe the Bible, the Bible says that anyone that's, that's not in Christ does not inherit eternal life. I didn't write those rules, and I don't even like them, actually, but then I do like them because I know there are people who deserve that. But that's why we're not the judge. That's why we don't decide where people go. And I don't know where my mom is, and we may get to heaven, and my mom might be there because she may have made a decision to follow Jesus that I'm not aware of. And oh, thank God if she did. But oh, dear God, if she didn't. And this reality, this truth, as hard as it is to embrace, it should frighten us to a point where we embrace what the Bible says that we're to do, and that is to proclaim Jesus to those that are far from him. You know, Angela, you said this a while ago. You said this. You said that maybe someone's here with a hard heart and God's softening their heart, and, and, and that they might have to forgive somebody. And in the context of what I'm preaching here, can you imagine getting to heaven and because you were so bitter at somebody that you never went to them and shared the life-giving message of Jesus Christ with them? You never gave them a chance because you didn't think they deserved it because of what they did to you or said to you or whatever, did to someone else. No, I think, I think the Christ-like thing to do is forgive them and then go preach Jesus to them and share with them the eternal hope that is in Christ. But we don't think that way. We don't respond that way. We, 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 we get all in a wad and we get a hard heart. But hearing what the Bible says, which we consider traditional Christianity, we consider the Bible as truth. Hearing what the Bible says about hell should compel us. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the Holy Spirit to empower us to be witnesses of God's love. God forgave you, and He expects you to forgive others. John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish. Should not perish. Eternal Conscious torment, eternal conscious punishment. Should not experience that, but have eternal life. And then it goes on in John 3, 17 to say, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to say, you've been a bad boy. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then Jesus said, go and make disciples. Go and be my witness. I'm giving you everything you need to do that. So at Northwood Church, we believe heaven to be a place of eternal conscious reward. <laughs> if hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment, heaven is a place of eternal conscious reward. For those found in Christ, Tim Keller, a pastor and theologian, said, This current world is not all there is. Christians will live with and enjoy God forever 
in the new city, the new heaven, the new earth, where we, we will be freed from sin and inhabit renewed, resurrected bodies in a renewed, restored creation. How many of you intend on going to heaven? Those who are found in Christ. There is a place of eternal union with God, and it's called heaven. And there is a place of eternal separation from God, and it's called hell. Got the band up here. We're going we're gonna to worship God here in just a second. But I, matter of fact, stand up for this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one last scripture that, that uh, will set the stage for this song we're going to sing as we talk about heaven and hell today. But Revelation 21, Revelation 21 gives kind of a picture. Um, that was me, Jonathan. That was me pondering. It gives us a picture of what's to come. It gives us a picture of what we long for. It's a motivation for our obedience to Christ. It's the, it's the carrot that we chase. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Heavenly Father, when we hear this, we, we are reminded that you are definitely the God of love, and you love us so much. You love us so much. And Jesus, you took the wrath of God upon yourself that we, we deserved. And here we are. Those that are in Christ, we're here today. The recipients of your love and of a future and of a hope. And we never want to take that lightly. So we sing this last song today about heaven as a declaration of our devotion to you. If you're away from God today for any reason, they're in this song. I just want you to cry out to God. Cry out to God and receive the gift, the free gift of salvation that he's extending to you today. If you haven't forgiven someone during this song, forgive them. Just let them go. Give them to God. And today during this song, if you're a believer, lift your voice. Lift your voice to the one you love, to the one that saves you, the one that gives you life. Father, that's you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.